0: Hello there. So, it's been a while since I've done one of these readings, Um, but today, since today marks the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the Iraq War in 2003, I thought I would read a little passage about uh, Iraq, uh, the Iraq War, and and particularly the Kurdish, um, how the Kurds fared uh, during and after that war. And it comes from Matt Johnson's new book, which I've posted about before, How Hitchens Can Save the Left. Uh, So I'm killing two birds with one stone, in a sense. Uh, I'm marking this 20th anniversary. And I'm also continuing my unofficial role as publicity agent for Matt's book. Again, I promise I'm not being paid to, to champion his book. But his book is now available for purchase, and I highly recommend it once more. So yes, this section is uh, about Hitchens, uh his uh, relationship with the Kurds, uh, the Iraq War and how the Kurds have fared uh since the Iraq war uh and uh, what we can learn about uh about uh international uh, internationalism and interventionism from from that. So here goes. After the Gulf War, Hitchens observed that the Kurds have powerful, impatient enemies and a few rather easily bored friends. Many of these friends could once have been found on the left, but their numbers were dwindling by the turn of the 21st century. When Barham Saleh, a veteran Kurdish politician who now serves as the president of Iraq, told Hitchens he was, quote, very disappointed with the left for its position on the Iraq war, he was expressing a sentiment that's unintelligible on the left today. It's conventional wisdom that the only sound position to take on the war is one of total condemnation, regardless of the positive effects it had for the fledgling, semi-autonomous state in Northern Iraq. But Hitchens knew what Sally meant and shared his disappointment. When an interviewer asked him in 2010 to identify the true revolutionaries in the world, he cited the, quote, people have striven with increasing success to create an independent Kurdistan in northern Iraq. This effort almost certainly would have been extinguished if it wasn't for continuous western military involvement in the 1990s and 2000s. During the Iraq War, Hitchens pointed out that quote, pardon me, Hitchens pointed out that the quote, toughest and most authentic guerrilla army in Iraq, the Kurdish Peshmerga, is fighting very effectively on the coalition side. He was friends with Kurdish leaders like Saleh and former President Jalal Talabani. He said his support for the war, quote, always was and still is a matter of solidarity with the democratic forces in Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan and of the need for the United States to change its policy and be on their side. The invasion of Iraq was, in fact, a complete and historic policy reversal when it came to the Kurds. In a 1997 article, Hitchens wrote, Ever since the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, an American signature, for better or worse, has been on various international promises for Kurdish autonomy. And it was always for worse. All those promises were broken. When Sally was Deputy Prime Minister of Iraq in 2007, he told Hitchens, We are willing to fight and sacrifice for a democratic Iraq, and we were the ones to suffer the most from the opposite case. If Iraq fails, it will not be our fault. When Iraq's Kurds overwhelmingly voted for independence in September 2017, Kubad Talabani, the Deputy Prime Minister of Kurdistan and Jalal Talabani's son, thought of Hitchens, "'If only Christopher could have been with us today, wearing his Kurdistan flag lapel pin, cheering us on. But the celebration was over before it started. Despite the fact that 93% of Kurds voted in favour of independence, the Iraqi government had no intention of granting the Kurds their autonomy. In fact, they would soon have even less control over their resources and territory. Not only were Turkey and Iran hostile to the vote, out of fear that it would inspire their Kurdish populations to move toward independence, The United States was opposed as well. Though the Kurds fought to expel the Islamic State from Kirkuk and other parts of northern Iraq after the Iraqi military fled in 2014, that same military, accompanied by Iranian-backed militias, forced them to relinquish control of the territory in 2017. The Kurdish flags flying over outposts that Peshmerga fighters had bravely defended against the Islamic State were taken down. Although there were several firefights, the heavily armed Peshmerga generally withdrew peacefully. In a failed attempt to convince the Kurds to delay the referendum, the Washington Post reported, the Trump administration offered to, quote, support the Kurds' negotiations with Baghdad. The United States' offer said that if negotiations with Baghdad had not progressed after two years, the United States would recognise the need for a referendum. A member of the Kurdistan Democratic Party, KDP, dismissed this familiar ploy. They were promising things that they couldn't implement because there would be opposition in Baghdad. What's the point? We've seen this play out so many times before. Hitchens always admired the Kurds' commitment to democracy despite these endless disappointments. He recalled meeting with Azam al Wash, a director at the American University of Iraq in Suleymaniyah, who explained that students would be learning about the, ideas of Locke, the ideas and writings of Paine and Madison. Hitchens continued, Everybody knows how to snigger when you mention Jeffersonian democracy and Iraq in the same breath. Try sniggering when you meet someone who is trying to express these ideas in an atmosphere that only a few years ago was heavy with miasmic decay and the reek of poison gas. When Hitchens' opponents would sneer at the idea that Iraq would somehow become a Jeffersonian democracy, he sometimes corrected them by pointing out that Iraqi democracy wouldn't be, strictly speaking, Jeffersonian, as the Iraqis aren't slaveholders. Hitchens dedicated his book on Thomas Paine to Jalal Talabani, the, quote, first elected president of the Republic of Iraq, sworn foe of fascism and theocracy, leader of a national revolution and a people's army, in the hope that his long struggle will be successful and will inspire emulation. Hitchens regarded the Kurds' fight for independence as one of the most venerable causes of the internationalist left. "'The Kurds are the largest nationality in the world without a state of their own,' he explained. The King of Bahrain has, in effect, his own seat at the United Nations, but the 25 million or so Kurds do not. This is partly because they are cursed by geography, with their ancestral lands located at the point where the frontiers of Iraq, Iran, Turkey, and Syria converge, it would be hard to imagine a less promising neighbourhood for a political experiment. These onerous conditions make it all the more striking that the Kurdish experiment has been impressively liberal and democratic. In 1994, Hitchens wrote an introduction to When the Borders Bleed, the Struggle of the Kurds, a compendium of photos by Ed Kashy. He emphasised the long history of deception and abuse at the hands of neighbouring countries and great powers. Quote, An experienced Kurd can tell his grandchildren of betrayal by colonial Britain and France, of promises made by Iran, Iraq, Syria and Turkey to support the Kurds for as long as they were fighting only on their rival's territory, of interventions in Kurdistan by Israel to weaken Arab nationalist regimes, and of promises made by both Cold War superpowers that turned out to be false. Hitchens was focused on the promises made by one Cold War superpower in particular. The Kurds have traditionally looked to the United States, he wrote, as their deliverer from old injustices. George Bush appeared to sympathise with their cause during Desert Storm, yet his subsequent lack of support has left them baffled. Western politicians seem unable to appreciate the depth of the Kurdish yearning for a homeland. Nor do Americans understand their country's long and fraught relationship with the Kurds, as Hitchens explained in a 1997 article, How many Americans know that Henry Kissinger used the Kurds as surrogates and mercenaries and then abandoned them in their hour of trial? How many Americans know that the Bush administration, which later yelled about the fact that the Kurds had been gassed by Saddam Hussein, had kept suspiciously quiet about that very gassing at the time when it occurred? The Kurds are people who, as Hitchens put it, don't live on some exotic planets but in the same international community as the Council on Foreign Relations and the Department of State. In other words, he thought it was long past time for Washington to stop treating them as bargaining chips or expendable tools in regional power politics. Hitchens didn't just believe the United States owed the Kurds a debt after decades of duplicity. He regarded the Kurds' fight for self-determination as a harbinger for democracy throughout the region. Quote, Kurdish forces and spokesmen have always been to the fore in democratic and reform movements in all four of their compulsory homelands, and the future of civilized discourse in Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria is inextricably bound up with their fate. Take Syria, for instance, where Kurds managed to carve a democratic enclave, Rojava, out of the most violent and unstable country on earth. During a September 2018 conversation with Noam Chomsky on Jeremy Scahill's Intercepted podcast, listeners may have been surprised to hear the world's foremost opponent of American military interventionism call for the United States to keep a contingent of forces in northeastern Syria. In my opinion, Chomsky said, it makes sense for the United States to maintain a presence which would deter an attack on the Kurdish areas. They have the one part of Syria which has succeeded in sustaining a functioning society. He continued, The idea that they should be subjected to an attack by their bitter enemies, the Turks, or by the murderous Assad regime, anything should be done to try to prevent that. Scahill was shocked at this decidedly unchomskyian assessment of the situation, which acknowledged that the US military could prevent aggressors from behaving aggressively, and he immediately launched into a more comfortable reinterpretation. You are one of the leading people in the world that is consistently reminding the world that the United States has always adopted a posture of certain Kurds are good Kurds, certain Kurds are bad Kurds. And the United States has poured money and weapons into the coffers of, for instance, the Turkish military, explicitly to be used for an ongoing attempt at genocide against the Kurds. So I'm curious how you reconcile that with a position that the United States would, in essence, be the protector of the Kurds in the context of the Syrian war. Chomsky countered that this history does not change the fact that now the United States could, with a relatively small presence, deter attacks against the Kurds in Syria. Scahill's attempts to change the subject from the policy in question to a well-worn recitation of American crimes should be familiar to Chomsky. In discussions about the Iraq war, for instance, he invariably pointed out that the United States supported Hussein as he waged war on Iran and committed genocide against the Kurds. Would he make the same argument about American hypocrisy to discredit Operation Provide Comfort, which established a no-fly zone over northern Iraq to protect the Kurds after the glut of violence following the Gulf War? In Schahill's obstinate refusal to see how American force could be used to protect its friends by deterring their enemies and preventing a potential humanitarian crisis in the process, Chomsky should have been able to see the logical outcome of his own approach to analysing US foreign policy. In October 2019, President Trump decided to withdraw 1,000 troops who were protecting the United States' Kurdish allies in northeastern Syria. Turkey seized this opportunity to invade Kurdish-held territory, which immediately turned one of the most stable parts of Syria into into a chaotic and bloody battlefield, displacing hundreds of thousands of civilians and leaving the Kurds at the mercy of their most implacable enemies. Tactically, Trump's decision was unintelligible. It gave Assad an opportunity to recapture lost territory, strengthened the Russian and Iranian positions in Syria, alienated European allies, reduced the United States' leverage in any future political settlement, and made the possibility of a resurgent Islamic state more likely. There was no pretense of Kissingerian realpolitik or strategic rationale at play. Trump abandoned the Kurds because he could. The consequences of Trump's withdrawal were easily predictable. Chomsky understood exactly what would happen and argued that the United States had a responsibility to prevent it. Scahill didn't dispute Chomsky's assumption that Turkey would immediately immediately exploit the vacuum left by the removal of US forces. He just didn't appear to care. The idea that the United States could be the protector of the Kurds in any context was intolerable to him even though the Kurds in question desperately needed assistance, and despite the fact that they were conducting a radical political experiment in Rojava that emphasised direct democracy, secularism and women's rights. As with much of today's left, Scahill allowed his antagonism toward the United States to override all other considerations, including even the most basic solidarity with the Kurds, a group whose interests he only champions when it's politically convenient to do so which is what the Kissingers of the world have always done. Although Although Hitchens was a strong advocate of Kurdish sovereignty, there was tension between this position and some of his internationalist inclinations. While he understood the practical value of the Kurds' autonomy, given the decades of harrowing abuse they suffered at Baghdad's hands, as well as the legitimacy of their demand for self-determination as the world's largest stateless minority, these positions clashed with his support for political integration. As a general principle, from India to Cyprus to Ireland, Hitchens deplored partition as a dangerous and superficial solution to political conflict. As he put it in a 2003 essay, All partitions, except that of Germany, have led to war, or another partition, or both. He observed that the fault lines and flashpoints of journalistic shorthand are astonishingly often the consequences of frontiers created ad hoc by British imperialism. He argued that the partition of India, with its enormous military wastage and potentially catastrophic nuclear potential, must count as one of the great moral and political failures in recent human history. Hitchens wasn't just hostile to partition because it was often overseen by incompetent colonial officials. It also reliably activates blind tribal instincts. Even in countries and regions that had been partitioned many decades earlier, he noticed that people discussed their injuries as if they had been inflicted yesterday. Although tribalism often fuels provincial quarrels and prejudices that seem only to harm the people who hold them, it can take hold on a much larger scale and even pose an existential threat to millions of people, as the conflict between India and Pakistan demonstrates. Hitchens recognised the tragic absurdity of this situation. One of the great advantages possessed by Homo sapiens is the amazing lack of variation between its different branches. Since we left Africa, we have diverged as a species hardly at all. If we were dogs, we would all be the same breed. We do not suffer from the enormous differences that separate other primates, let alone other mammals. As if to spite this huge natural gift and to disfigure what could be our overwhelming solidarity, we manage to find excuses for chauvinism and racism on the most minor of occasions and then to make the most of them. This is why condemnation of bigotry and superstition is not just a moral question, but a matter of survival. Note the word superstition. Hitchens often emphasised the insecure role of religion in conflicts caused by partition. The idea that terrestrial claims could be justified with appeals to divine authority was anathema to him, which is why he argued that faith is a force multiplier, as well as a, enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and hatred. In the Israel-Palestine conflict, the Iraq war and many other conflicts around the world, He also argued that religion could be exploited by those who favoured partition. The availability of a religious wedge, added to the innate or latent appeal of chauvinism and tribalism, was always a godsend to the masters of divide and rule. Among other things, it allowed the authorities to pose as overworked mediators between irreconcilable passions. This conviction that conflicts are the consequence of irrational incompatible and incompatible passions has long been an excuse for Western powers to ignore massacres and other crimes that they are in a position to mitigate or prevent. President Clinton spent two years stalling while the death toll surged in Bosnia and one of the reasons was his conviction that violence and tribalism were endemic to the region. As George Packer writes in Our Man, Richard Holbrooke and the End of the American Century Clinton was reading a book that his wife had given him, Balkan Ghosts, by a journalist named Robert Kaplan. It portrayed the region as soaked in the blood of ancient tribal hatreds. They'd been fighting one another forever. Kaplan, in turn, had travelled around the Balkans, avidly reading Rebecca West's enormous classic Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, about her journey through Yugoslavia just before World War II, a book with a strong pro serb and anti-Muslim bias. Where Europeans saw a war of for me, where Europeans saw a war of civilizations, Americans threw up their hands at incomprehensible old-world trouble. Hitchens recognized this attitude, which he encountered constantly when advocating for NATO involvement in the Balkans, for what it was an instrumental prejudice that presents inaction and indifference as prudence. The insistence that conflicts are ancient and intractable is a political tactic often used by the isolationist right. When Senator Rand Paul argued that abandoning America's Kurdish allies in Syria was the right thing to do, asserting falsely that Turkey was going to invade regardless of what Washington did, he observed that the United States should stay out of a hundred-year-old war between the Turks and the Kurds. Paul has a habit of presenting the entire Middle East as a pit of primitive violence and tribalism. Anybody read about the Middle East? he asked during a campaign event in 2015. They've been killing each other for a thousand years and they'll probably be killing each other for another thousand years. That doesn't mean we just retreat and do nothing, that means we need to acknowledge what the Middle East is like before we get involved. This position ignores the United States' history of exacerbating tensions and fueling violence in the region, as well as the fact that there are millions of people who don't fit Paul's caricature of bloodthirsty permanent combatants. They are just human beings unfortunate enough to be born and caught in war zones, failed states and autocracies. While Western leaders have been all too willing to redraw the map, often with disastrous repercussions, They are reluctant to halt violent partitions in progress. But as Hitchens explained, Western powers can also mitigate the worst consequences of those partitions, such as the genocide in the Balkans. the largely secular Muslims of Bosnia and Kosovo were the main victims of the cave-in to partition in the former Yugoslavia, and are now the chief beneficiaries of that policy's reversal. While some religious and ethnic groups have benefited from partition to the detriment of others, Hitchens argued that the people who suffered most were those of all creeds and of none who believed in modernity and had transcended tribalism. He made this point in a passage about how partition has affected various Muslim communities, as well as secularists and members of minority sects and faiths in those communities. But it reflects his attitude toward partition in many other contexts. Recall the poster he saw in Sarajevo, which featured Muslim, Jewish and Christian iconography with a superscription, We Are One People. He observed that this display was all that was left of internationalism in the country, a declaration of solidarity which was eclipsed by an outbreak of the most vicious and determined nationalism the region had seen since World War II. As Hitchens understood, the Kurds have more reasons to fiercely value their independence than just about any group. He instantly would have seen through the Trump administration's promise to recognise the need for a referendum on Kurdish sovereignty. Yet another insulting lie dressed up as generous mediation. He knew the United States and other countries had long used similar assurances to placate the Kurds or manipulate them into acting as proxies against adversaries. But he still argued that the idea of partitioning Iraq along religious and ethnic lines would likely end in disaster. And he lauded the Kurds' willingness to play a role in the development of a democratic and federal political system in the country. As he explained in a 2005 debate, The Kurds have begun to build and help other Iraqis build when they could have been chauvinistic. They could have been xenophobic. They could have said, enough with Iraq, we're through with it, we're leaving. Instead, they accepted their internationalist responsibilities. President Talibani, it seems to me, is a president of whom any country in the region could be proud, and not just by the sort of comparisons one could make. This is an extraordinary, unarguable, unambiguous gain. The Kurds' ethnic and religious solidarity helped them build a a relatively stable democracy and civil society in northern Iraq. But it isn't their loyalty to their tribal identity that Hitchens admired, it's their commitment to the universal ideal of self-government. None of this is to say the Kurds are above infighting, a civil war erupted between the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, P.U.K. and the Kurdistan Democratic Party, KDP, in the mid-1990s, which left thousands dead. This was when Saddam Hussein's forces pushed pushed into Kurdistan in defiance of the Western forces protecting the area. Nor is it to say their democracy is perfect. Widespread voting irregularities have been reported in recent elections, where plunging voter turnout has been driven by allegations of fraud, the duopoly of the KDP and PUK, and discontent about the thwarted independence referendum. But democracy is young in Iraqi Kurdistan, as it is in the rest of the country, and it still represents an unarguable and unambiguous gain over the alternatives, especially in a country coming off decades of war and totalitarianism. Hitchens believed it was possible to reconcile his internationalism with his support for Kurdish self-determination. Quote, Partition in Iraq would be defeats under another name, and as with past partitions would lead to yet further partitions and micro-wars over these very subdivisions, but if it has to come, we cannot even consider abandoning the one part of the country that did seize the opportunity of modernization, development and democracy. Hitchens acknowledged that the Kurds could be as tribal and fratricidal as any group. He noted that during Operation Provide Comfort, they reduced their foreign friends to despair by first holding an election and then settling remaining issues at gunpoint. Kanan Makia has discussed the conflict at length. But he celebrated any move toward democracy in the region, no matter how uneven. In a 2006 article, he recalled the moments we all now yawn about, with millions of people waiting patiently and getting purple fingers, which has since been repeated twice, to the point where elections in Iraq, Iraq have come to seem routine, even banal. Despite the ever-present corruption and violence in the country, especially due to the influence of armed Iranian proxies and the political popularity of religious thugs like Muqtada al-Sadr, Iraqi democracy remains far more robust than most of the alternatives in the region. There we go. Once more, I highly recommend the book, and uh, I hope that that <coughs> passage or se- section... um. Uh makes makes you think about uh, the Iraq War, um on this day, uh the twentieth anniversary of its beginning. Uh, was it worth it? Personally, I still think yes. I th- I think the alternatives were likely to have been much much worse, and uh, as Matt says there uh despite everything uh iraqi democracy is fairly um robust uh, and and that is something that should be celebrated you know uh it wasn't that long ago that iraq was a pit of misery and genocide so such progress however meager it may seem is in fact quite a radical improvement and something that should be celebrated. Anyway, that's all for today. Have a nice week.